Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Taiko Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. We're happy to have you here regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, that abortion is health care, and that black lives matter. And we stand in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. Some news before we get started. This week and next week are going to be shorter episodes. My wife and I are in the process of moving out of our apartment and into a house. As a result of this, the treated space I record in is no longer quite as treated, and I noticed the other day that it's just got a ton of reverb in it now compared to how it used to sound. So, if this episode and probably the next one sound a little weird, that's why. After that, we'll be in our house, and I still have to find a suitable recording space there and get it all worked up, so things may be a little wonky. I apologize. This is the crunch time week of the move, and in addition to the regular episodes, I've got Frankenstein to get out every day, as well as recording for an audiobook of weird fiction I'm narrating, and a couple roles in some audio dramas I need to get recorded and sent out. And with all that going on, these episodes are going to be shorter, and for that, I apologize. Please allow me to make it up to you with the fulfillment of a long-promised event. Over the course of this show and the intros I've been doing, I've been talking about a book I've been working on called The Colin Malatrat Museum of Curious Oddities and Strange Antiquities. It's a collection of interconnected weird fiction stories that I've been working towards for the past five years. Some of the stories date back to almost 20 years ago, and while I had no inkling then that they were connected to other stories, I found those connections the more I dug. I spent a not insignificant amount of time reworking them, bringing them in line with each other, and reworking the overarching story. Then there was a substantial editing process, both for line edits and story edits, but I am proud to announce that the Colin Malatrat Museum of Curious Oddities and Strange Antiquities is now finished and available to purchase. As of the date of writing this transcript, there is only a paperback version available, but a hardback and ebook version have been submitted and will soon become available. I plan to have an audiobook version read by myself and my wife available before the end of the year. This has been a book that's been a long time in the making, and when I got the email that it was published and available to purchase, I may or may not have gotten a little emotional about it. I'm so incredibly proud of this book and the stories it contains. I've read a lot of weird fiction for this show. Some of it has been good, some of it has been all right, and some of it has been bad. I like to think myself a pretty good judge, and while I may be biased, I don't think I would consider any of the stories in the collection bad if I hadn't been the one to write them. Anyway, please go check it out. It's on Amazon. Just do a search for Colin Malatrat and you'll find it. There's also a link to it in the show notes. I love my book, and I know you'll love it too, and I look forward to your reading it. Thanks so much. On to today's story. The Interlopers by Saki In a forest of mixed growth, somewhere on the eastern spurs of the Carpathians, a man stood one winter night watching and listening as though he waited for some beast of the woods to come within the range of his vision and later of his rifle. But the game, for whose presence he kept so keen an outlook, was none that figured in the sportsman's calendar as lawful and proper for the chase. Ulrich von Grodwitz patrolled the dark forest in quest of a human enemy. The forest lands of Grodwitz were of wide extent and well stocked with game. The narrow strip of precipitous woodland that lay on its outskirt was not remarkable for the game it harbored or the shooting it afforded, but it was the most jealously guarded of all its owner's territorial possessions. 
A famous lawsuit in the days of his grandfather had wrested it from the illegal possession of a neighboring family of petty landowners. The dispossessed party had never acquiesced in the judgment of the courts, and a long series of poaching affrays and similar scandals had embittered the relationships between the families for three generations. The neighbor feud had grown into a personal one since Ulrich had come to be head of his family. If there was a man in the world whom he detested and wished ill, it was Georg Zanaim, the inheritor of the quarrel and the tireless game-snatcher and raider of the disputed border forest. The feud might perhaps have died down or been compromised if the personal ill-will of the two men had not stood in the way. As boys, they had thirsted for one another's blood. As men, each prayed that misfortune might fall on the other. And this wind-scourged winter night, Ulrich had banded together his foresters to watch the dark forest, not in quest of four-footed quarry, but to keep a lookout for the prowling thieves whom he suspected of being afoot from across the land boundary. The roebuck, which usually kept in the sheltered hollows during a storm wind, were running like driven things tonight, and there was movement and unrest among the creatures that were wont to sleep through the dark hours. Assuredly, there was a disturbing element in the forest, and Ulrich could guess the quarter from whence it came. He strayed away by himself from the watchers whom he had placed in ambush on the crest of the hill, and wandered far down the steep slopes amid the wild tangle of undergrowth, peering through the tree trunks and listening through the whistling and skirling of the wind and the restless beating of the branches for sight and sound of the marauders. If only on this wild night, in this dark lone spot, he might come across Georg's name, man to man, with none to witness. That was the wish that was uppermost in his thoughts. And as he stepped round the trunk of a huge beech, he came face to face with the man he sought. The two enemies stood glaring at one another for a long, silent moment. Each had a rifle in his hand, each had hate in his heart and murder uppermost in his mind. The chance had come to give full play to the passions of a lifetime. But a man who has been brought up under the code of restraining civilization cannot easily nerve himself to shoot down his neighbor in cold blood and without word spoken, except for an offense against his hearth and honor. And before the moment of hesitation had given way to action, a deed of nature's own violence overwhelmed them both. A fierce shriek of the storm had been answered by a splitting crash over their heads, and ere they could leap aside, a mass of fallen beech tree had thundered down on them. Ulrich von Gradwitz found himself stretched on the ground, one arm numb beneath him, and the other held almost as helplessly in a tight tangle of forked branches, while both legs were pinned beneath the fallen mass. His heavy shooting boots had saved his feet from being crushed to pieces, but if his fractures were not as serious as they might have been, at least it was evident that he could not move from his present position till someone came to release him. The descending twig had slashed the skin of his face, and he had to wink away some drops of blood from his eyelashes before he could take in a general view of the disaster. At his side, so near that under ordinary circumstances he could almost have touched him, lay Georg Zanaim, alive and struggling, but obviously as helplessly pinioned down as himself. All round them lay a thick-strewn wreckage of splintered branches and broken twigs. Relief at being alive and exasperation at his captive plight brought a strange medley of pious thank-offerings and sharp curses to Ulrich's lips. Georg, who was nearly blinded with the blood which trickled across his eyes, stopped his struggling for a moment to listen, and then gave a short, snarling laugh. So, you're not killed as you ought to be, but you're caught anyway, he cried, caught fast. Oh, 
What a jest. Ulrich von Grodwitz snared in his stolen forest. There's real justice for you. And he laughed again, mockingly and savagely. I'm caught in my own forest land, retorted Ulrich. When my men come to release us, you will wish, perhaps, that you were in a better plight than caught poaching on a neighbor's land. Shame on you. Georg was silent for a moment, then he answered quietly, Are you sure that your men will find much to release? I have men, too, in the forest tonight, close behind me, and they will be here first and do the releasing. When they drag me out from under these damned branches and won't need much clumsiness on their part to roll this massive trunk right over on the top of you, your men shall find you dead under a fallen beech tree. For form's sake, I shall send my condolences to your family. It's a useful hint, said Ulrich fiercely. My men had orders to follow in ten minutes' time, seven of which must have gone by already, and when they get me out, I will remember the hint. Only as you will have met your death poaching on my lands, I don't think I can decently send any message of condolence to your family. Good, snarled Georg, good. We fight this quarrel out to the death, you and I and our foresters, with no cursed interlopers to come between us. Death and damnation to you, Ulrich von Grodwitz. The same to you, Georg name, forest thief, game snatcher. Both men spoke with the bitterness of possible defeat before them, for each knew that it might be long before his men would seek him out or find him. It was a bare matter of chance which party would arrive first on the scene. Both had now given up the useless struggle to free themselves from the mass of wood that held them down. Ulrich limited his endeavors to an effort to bring his one partially free arm near enough to his outer coat pocket to draw out his wine flask. Even when he had accomplished that operation, it was long before he could manage the unscrewing of the stopper or get any of the liquid down his throat. But what a heaven-sent draft it seemed. It was an open winter, and little snow had fallen as yet. Hence, the captives suffered less from the cold than might have been the case at that season of the year. Nevertheless, the wine was warming and reviving to the wounded man, and he looked across with something like a throb of pity to where his enemy lay, just keeping the groans of pain and weariness from crossing his lips. "'Could you reach this flask if I threw it over to you?' asked Ulrich suddenly. "'There is good wine in it, and one may as well be as comfortable as one can. Let us drink, even if tonight one of us dies.' "'No, I can scarcely see anything.' There is so much blood caked round my eyes, said Georg, and in any case, I don't drink wine with an enemy. Ulrich was silent for a few minutes and lay listening to the weary screeching of the wind. An idea was slowly forming and growing in his brain, an idea that gained strength every time that he looked across at the man who was fighting so grimly against pain and exhaustion. In the pain and languor that Ulrich himself was feeling, the old fierce hatred seemed to be dying down. Neighbor, he said presently, do as you please if your men come first. It was a fair compact. But as for me, I have changed my mind. If my men are the first to come, you shall be the first to be helped, as though you were my guest. We have quarreled like devils all our lives over this stupid strip of forest where the trees can't even stand upright in a breath of wind. Lying here tonight thinking, I've come to think we've been rather fools." There are better things in life than getting the better of a boundary dispute. Neighbor, if you will help me to bury the old quarrel, I... I will ask you to be my friend. Georg's name was silent for so long that Ulrich thought perhaps he had fainted with the pain of his injuries. 
Then he spoke slowly and in jerks. How the whole region would stare and gabble if we rode into the market square together. No one living can remember seeing his name in a von Gradwitz talking to one another in friendship. And what peace there would be among the forester folk if we ended our feud tonight. And if we choose to make peace among our people, there's none other to interfere. No interlopers from outside. You would come and keep the Sylvester night beneath my roof, and I would come and feast on some high day at your castle. I would never fire a shot on your land, save when you invited me as a guest, and you should come and shoot with me down in the marshes where the wildfowl are. In all the countryside, there are none that could hinder if we willed to make peace. I never thought to have wanted to do other than hate you all my life, but I think I have changed my mind about things, too, this last half hour. And you offered me your wine flask. Ulrich von Grodwitz, I will be your friend. For a space, both men were silent, turning over in their minds the wonderful changes that this dramatic reconciliation would bring about. In the cold, gloomy forest, with the wind tearing in fitful gusts through the naked branches and whistling round the tree trunks, they lay and waited for the help that would now bring release and succor to both parties. And each prayed a private prayer that his men might be the first to arrive, so that he might be the first to show honorable attention to the enemy that had become a friend. Presently, as the wind dropped for a moment, Ulrich broke silence. "'Let's shout for help,' he said. "'In this lull, our voices may carry a little way.' "'They won't carry far through the trees and undergrowth,' said Georg. "'But we can try. Together, then.' The two raised their voices in a prolonged hunting call. "'Together again,' said Ulrich a few minutes later, after listening in vain for an answering hello. "'I heard nothing but the pestilential wind.' said Georg hoarsely. There was silence again for some minutes, and then Ulrich gave a joyful cry. I can see figures coming through the wood. They are following in the way I came down the hillside. Both men raised their voices in as loud a shout as they could muster. They hear us. They've stopped. Now they see us. They're running down the hill towards us, cried Ulrich. How many of them are there? asked Georg. I can't see distinctly, said Ulrich. Nine or ten. Then they are yours, said Georg. I only had seven out with me. "'They are making all the speed they can, brave lads,' said Ulrich gladly. "'Are they your men?' asked Georg. "'Are they your men?' he repeated impatiently as Ulrich did not answer. "'No,' said Ulrich with a laugh, the idiotic, chattering laugh of a man unstrung with hideous fear. "'Who are they?' asked Georg quickly, straining his eyes to see what the other would gladly not have seen. "'Wolves!' And that is the end of the story. Thank you so much for listening. Please go and pick up a copy of the Colin Malatrat Museum of Curious Oddities and Strange Antiquities. I'm really proud of it, and I know you'll enjoy it. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, please feel free to support me on Patreon. Every dollar goes back into the show and helps support things like hosting fees, guest readers, and the ridiculously expensive thing that I can't be bothered to look up right now because I'm all sorts of stressed out. Please go and get vaccinated for any and all vaccinations and boosters for which you are eligible. Insult, belittle, and embarrass a racist or really any kind of bigot you see out on the street. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always 
the next one. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.